Welcome to Theology 101. We are so glad that each and every one of you are here on this journey to study who God is, how he works, what he's doing in our world, and how we fit into it. And that word, theology, it simply means the study of God. And Chris talked just a moment ago about about that and about what A.W. Tozer said about that. But a question I have is, why is it important to study theology? Why is it important to have an accurate view of who God is? Lots of reasons. You can, you're probably thinking of some right now. Um, but if we don't have an accurate view of who God is, how he's at work, what he's doing in the world, and how he created us, then we don't know how to live according to our design. We don't know how to bring him glory. We don't know how to rest in his loving hands. Um, so it is important to understand and have an accurate view of God. Um, and I want to be who God created me to be. I want to know who he is and know how to rightly relate to him. And I want to bring him glory. That's what he created us for. We exist to bring him glory. Creation brings God glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Creation knows what to do to bring God glory. They, creation just does what it's created to do. But human beings, we're created in God's image. That means we have a will. We have a mind. We have agency. And because of the fall, sometimes we don't properly reflect him. And we, we struggle to bring him glory. But that's what we're created to do. What would it be like if God had never revealed himself to humanity? What would life be like if we didn't know why we existed and where we came from? That is an interesting thing to think about. It's hard to even imagine what it would be like to not know where you came from or what you were created for. But God wants us to know him. And he revealed himself to us in the creation he revealed himself to us through the scripture, Old and New Testaments, and he revealed himself to us through the life of Jesus. He wants us to know him, and he's given us all we need to know how to bring him glory. What if a person doesn't have an accurate theology? What if someone, we would usually say like, oh, they have a bad theology. What happens if a person has a bad theology? What might that look like? Well, it could look like that they believe God is, is an angry, unforgiving God. And that looks like living a life in fear. Fear of God's punishment. They could see God as a faraway creator. Not involved in our lives. And they could live without his daily presence and comfort. And live in his love, the love he has for us. If I believe that God is all love... And I don't also understand that he's also holy and just. Then I'm not going to be living in the truth. I'm not going to be living in alignment to how he created me and how I reflect his image to the world. If I believe that God's love is conditional. Then I can never rest. 
I can never feel secure. So theology comes out of us, even when we don't realize it. Theology comes out of us. It determines our thoughts, our beliefs, our actions. It's how we look at life. So it's very important, again, that we have an accurate theology because dysfunction comes out of bad theology. And if you think about dysfunction, you can, you can, you can, you can a lot of times and maybe always trace it back to an inaccurate view of God. By the end of this course, you will all be theologians. Just kidding. But you will have a more accurate view of God. Okay? You'll hear us talk a lot about doctrine. What is doctrine? Doctrine is what the whole Bible teaches about a topic. So we're going to be looking at the doctrine of God, the doctrine of creation, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of Christ, and so many others. Our statement of faith... Um, it, it holds true to things that we would call gospel issues. So it, you may have heard someone say before, like, you need to know what you believe about that because that's a gospel issue. Or, or you may have heard somebody say, you know what, that's not a gospel issue. There's liberty there in, in what you believe. But what we're going to be looking at is what our denomination believes are gospel issues. Let's dig into Article 1, the first part of God. Article 1, God. We believe in one God, creator of all things, holy, infinitely perfect, and eternally existing in a loving unity of three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Having limitless knowledge and sovereign power, God has graciously purposed from eternity to redeem a people for himself and to make all things new for his own glory. How do we know God exists? Romans 1, 19 to 20 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly, clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Do you think that people have an inner sense that there's a God? Nature definitely inspires us that there's a creator. But there's really no way to prove the existence of God. Because he created the systems that we use to prove stuff. And he is far above those systems. He exists separate. And you know what? God will only allow us to prove what he wants us to prove. And there is always going to be an element of faith in our relationship with God. We are always going to have to trust God, right? And that's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be in a relationship of trust with God. There are some arguments used to support the existence of God apart from the biblical argument, the, create, the creation uh, argument. Cosmological argument is that there must be a cause. There must be a cause for the universe. The teleological argument is that the world is designed with so much order and harmony and purpose that there has to be a designer. The ontological argument has to do with the philosophy of existence and being. And you know what? That argument was like too hard for me to learn. 
I'm sorry, I could not grasp it. It was like, I do not get this at all. So there, that is one, and you can, you can dig deeper into that if you want to. The moral argument, man has a sense of right and wrong and fairness and justice, so there must be a God who is the source of right and wrong. But nature is not enough to completely reveal to us who God is. Because apart from the Bible, we don't properly interpret the evidences of God. So he has given us the Bible as a filter for the way we see the world. It's such a gift to us. The Bible is such a gift to us. And that is our main source of understanding who God is. So we've all grown up in this culture. And everything in our culture needs to be explained. Right? Like we are a culture that wants everything proven. Um, there's even websites. When we hear something, we have to know if that's real or not. And so we even have websites that tell us, is this real or is this a hoax? So we live in this time of, of science and scientific research and, and this whole area um, of study. And, and, and you know what? Again, God can't be measured by science because God created the science. And science reflects the ordered design that God has chosen his creation to act within. But, but he's above it. He wants us to make discoveries. Again, he created science. He wants us to discover things. He wants us to make the world right again. He wants us to, 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 to work and be part of the restoration of our world back to the garden. So that means he wants us to, to have medical discoveries and fight diseases and cure cancer and create treatments. And he, he wants that to happen. But again, we can appreciate science, but we can't prove God's existence through science. And we can't measure God through science. The, this book had a quote in it that I really liked a lot. It said, The first responsibility of sentient moral creatures is to acknowledge their creatureliness. I really love that a lot for us to remember that we are his creatures. How important is it for you to be able to explain everything? Think about that. Are you uncomfortable not being able to explain everything? You know, he is infinite. He's, he doesn't have the limits we have. So I think we have to be at peace with maybe we can't completely understand everything about God. But we can understand a lot about God. I want to uh, draw your attention to page 34. And um, when we're talking about the doctrine of creation, so we're kind of turning toward creation a little bit. This tells us the things that our statement of faith holds true to with creation. It says, however, to be within the doctrinal parameters of the EFCA, any understanding of the process of creation must affirm that God is the creator of all things out of nothing. He created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. That he pronounced his creation very good. That God created with order and purpose. That God is the sovereign ruler over all creation, which by his personal and particular providence he sustains. That God created the first humans, the historical, 
Adam and Eve uniquely in his image, and that through their sin, all humanity, along with this created order, is now fallen. So as I said, we can know a lot about God, but not everything because, because God is incomprehensible. Psalm 145.3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. We can't be equal to him. We can't figure him out completely. We can't change him. He's unchanging. He is who, we are, who, he, is who he is, and we live in his world. Have you ever heard somebody say, like, we just live in, in, in his or her world, right? We're just existing, like, but really only God, <laughs> that's only true about God. We live in his world. Um, he's holy. That means he's utterly unique and separate from us. And I find holiness kind of a difficult concept to grasp. And I was thinking about why is this such a difficult concept to grasp? And I think it's because in our culture, there's nothing that I would say is holy. You know, there, there's just nothing I can, that, that relates to God like that. And, and that's okay. I did uh, watch a video that the Bible Project produced on holiness, so I do want to encourage you. That was a really good video if you want to go and read a little bit or listen to a little bit more about God's holiness. Um, he's inherently perfect. He always does what's right because his nature is perfection. He always does what's right because he is right. He's the one who tells us what's right. Um, and his nature is the establishment of rightness. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't lean into rightness or put on rightness. He doesn't put on perfection. It is who he is. He's perfect, and he reflects, his nature reflects what's perfect. Um, a few months ago, someone, a younger person, we were reading a passage, and, and this person said, well, I don't really believe that that's God. And I said, well, that's what this passage says about God. And this person said, well, I don't believe that about God. And if I can think of a better God than what that God is, then I'm going to believe, I'm, I don't believe in that God. And so, I mean, we really can't do that, though, can we? First of all, we can't come up with a better God than who God is. And, and, and God is God. So we can't change who he is he is perfect he is holy and he's distinct from creation he made it he rules over it and the word to describe that of being like bigger than creation being so far above creation is transcendent God is transcendent but yet he's still involved in creation and the word for that is imminent he's transcendent he's so far above creation but he still, in, he still remains in creation, and he's involved in creation. So he's transcendent and he's imminent. Um, Paul says in Acts 17 that God gives all men life and breath and everything, and that in him we live and move and have our being. And we read about, about his transcendence and his imminence in Ephesians 4, 6, and it says, One God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. If you want to study some other views of, of, of God, one is material. I'm not telling you to do this, by the way. It, it's just like if you want to kind of geek out on some of the other arguments and some of the other views of God, materialism, that view um, believes that God's non-existent. The only thing existent is, is material, is, is matter. 
Um, and so that would mean that the immaterial soul wouldn't exist in that view. Pantheism says that God is the whole universe. So God would have no distinct personality. He can't be holy in this view because evil would be a part of God as well. Dualism is the belief that God and the universe exist side by side as two forces, God and matter, and matter would kind of represent evil, kind of like this, I would say that would be kind of like Star Wars, the two, these two forces. And deism is that God is not active in creation. So he's transcendent, but he's not imminent. Now, we're going we're gonna to kind of move toward our closing, which is looking at the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, this is one of the most confusing and hardest to explain doctrines, but it is one of the most important. The outer hard shell, the egg white and the yolk of an egg, the branches, trunk, and roots of a tree, the liquid, solid, and gaseous state of water, a three-leaf three clover, a person who's a spouse, a parent, and a teacher. What do all of these things have in common? They've all been used to describe the Trinity, but they've all failed to do so. None of, we can't come up with anything to describe the Trinity. Why is this so hard to explain? Again, kind of reminds me of the way I think of holiness. There's just nothing that we have to explain it. It's, it's hard to explain. The three points of the Trinity are God is three distinct persons. All three persons are equally God, and God is one. God is three distinct persons. All three persons are equally God, and God is one. The word Trinity isn't even in the Bible. I don't, I don't know if you knew that or not, but the evidence of the Trinity is all throughout the Bible. It's doctrine starts even in Genesis 1.20 when it says, let us make man in our image. And then I think of the verse in Matthew 28.19 when Jesus told his followers to baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that Trinity, that doctrine of the Trinity was established in the, first, in the early 3rd century uh, by someone that I've heard called the father of Western Christianity, uh, Tur Tur Turgulin, or Turgulin. Sorry, I don't know if I pronounced that right. This is what A.W. Tozer said about the Trinity. He said, It is so mind-blowing and so difficult for us to understand that it must be true. Of course, that was my paraphrase. Do you want to hear the real quote? Okay. The this is what he really said, but it's, uh, that's my paraphrase. The doctrine of the Trinity is truth for the heart. The fact that it cannot be satisfactor satisfactorily explained instead of being against it is in its favor. Such a truth had to be revealed. No one could imagine it. So let's look at each of those descriptions briefly. God is three persons. So this means the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, the Son's not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit... They're dis they have, each have distinct characteristics, and hopefully you had time to look at some of that in your homework and see that they each have personal characteristics. So the second one, each person is fully God. Each person is fully God. Well, God the Father, we get that pretty easily. He's clearly God. 
He's who Jesus prays to. He's the sovereign Lord throughout the scripture. Jesus is God. And in in John, the first chapter, it says, the word was with God and the word was God. And then a little bit later in verse 14, it says that God became man um, and dwelt among us. In John 20, 28, Thomas, one of the disciples, after the resurrection, declares Jesus, my Lord and my God. And the Holy Spirit is declared in the scriptures as God. One of the verses there is Acts 5, 3 to 4. Peter asks Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to man, but to God. So all three of the persons of the Trinity are fully God, fully divine. And that's why none of those analogies fit. Because most of those analogies represent something that has different parts. And... They're not, they're not part of God. It's not like God's a, God the Father's a third, God the Son's a third, or, and the Spirit's a third, and they all together become one God. That's not the way it is. God the Father is 100% God. Jesus the Son is 100% God. The Holy Spirit is 100% God. And then the last point, there's one God. There's one God. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you know what? There are lots of other verses that declare him to be one God. And at that time in culture, that needed to be clear, needed to be a distinction, because polytheism, the belief in multiple gods, was, some, was a perspective that people had then. So that had to be clear. There's one God There's three persons, all equally God, but there's one God. Just a couple of other observations about the Trinity. They're in this eternally existing, loving union. Eternally existing, loving union. They've always been. When when I was a child, that was like really hard for me to understand. Because I'd say to my mom, where did God come from? She'd say, he's always been. And I could not wrap my brain around that. Am I, did anybody else have that thought as a child? Like, how is that? Because everything that I experienced was either created or born. So I really had a hard time understanding that God has always been. Jesus has always been. The Holy Spirit has always existed eternally together in this loving union. And in this loving union, we see this, this relationship where they work together. In creation, we see that God the Father spoke the creative words. God the Son carried out the creative decrees. And God the Spirit was moving over the face of the waters. In redemption, God the Father planned redemption. God the Son accomplished redemption. And God the Holy Spirit was sent by the Father and the Son to apply redemption to us, to regenerate, empower, and guide us into sanctification. Now, if you believe that God is one person who does different jobs, then you would believe in modalism. It's it's one God that goes between three different modes. If you believe that Jesus wasn't fully God, then you're an Arian. Arianism is the view that Jesus was not, in fact, he wasn't deity. He wasn't God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that believe that and also Mormons believe that he was human and he became God that he wasn't eternally existing as as fully God Uh, and and then lastly if you believe there are three gods because you believe yes they're all they're fully God then 
but, but, but yet they're not one, you would believe in tritheism, that there are three gods. So those are just some of the other views on the Trinity. Um, but they have this community that they live within. And, and, and so I just think, like, what does God want to teach us through the Trinity? Like, we reflect God. We're created in His image. This, the Trinity is existing in this loving union. They're working together. They're in this community. You know what? They were eternally existing and complete before we, before we existed. And they didn't need us. They don't need us. They exist in completeness. They love one another because they are love. Again, back to the kind of what I was saying about um, God's perfection, Him being inherently perfect. They love because they are love. It's not like us where we have to like behave that way. We have to put on love. They are love, and so they are in this loving union. So what can we learn from the Trinity? I hope you have a great discussion in your small groups. I want to end with this, this verse because it might inspire us um, toward how we can try to live in, in that union. Um, it's in John. It's when Jesus was praying before he was arrested, before he was put to death. It's John 17, verse 20 to 21. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as you are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Can you imagine? God loves us when we're in union with Christ, when we know Jesus. God loves us the way he loves Jesus. That is amazing. But God wants us to be one as believers. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I hope you guys have a wonderful time in your small groups. And let me pray for us. And then you guys are welcome to grab a cup of coffee in Colony Cafe. But if you, and if you don't know your small group room, let me know. But I hope you have a wonderful time discussing what we've talked about tonight. Let me pray. Father, we are so grateful that you want us to know you. <laughs> Lord, you created us. You made us in your image. You love us. And you want us to be in an intimate relationship with you. And you want us to know who you really are. And Lord, that's, it's so easy to get off on our theology, off on our, our understanding of who you are. So we're grateful to have this opportunity to study what the scripture says about you, what you do, how you do it, and who you are. Help us, Lord, help us to just grasp who you are and what that means for how we bring you glory. I pray that you'll bless our time in, in our small groups and that we will really open up and, and really make discoveries together. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.